Amen. I do have some family in town visiting, and so it's good to have uh, them and see some people we haven't seen in a while and have a room full of babies. It's pretty, pretty cool. So, all right, we're in Matthew chapter 17. Um, so if you're, if you're new to the door, uh, we have three pastors, um, yeah, who all share in the teaching, um, you know, on Sunday mornings from the pulpit. And the way that it works is basically where the last guy leaves off, you, you pick up. And, and so you don't know what you're going to get or where you're going to end up being. And every once in a while, you just get lucky and you, you come across one of those passages that everybody gets excited about and everybody likes. And, and this is just one of those days where we get to talk about two of your very favorite things, death and taxes. So, so yeah, I know you guys were anticipating something good and, and, and we're going to get it. So now the, the sections we're going to be in actually don't really go together per se. It's uh, Jesus predicting his death and resurrection, followed by an account of Jesus and Peter paying their taxes. But I think we're going to see a common theme of Jesus's provision for us, um, which is something, I, if you're like me, I need to be reminded of this over and over again, because I've been a Christian for a long time, and I've seen God's faithful provision in my life over and over again, and yet, uh, you know, I wish I could say I don't worry about it any longer, but I do. I still, I still worry and I struggle to, you know, wonder how God's going to meet my needs. And maybe you can relate to that too. And the interesting thing is that I, I don't doubt God's ability to provide for me. I know he can do everything. I, I know he can. I, I doubt his desire to want to help me. That's what it really comes down to. Uh, why would he want to help somebody who is unfaithful, unloving, unreliable, you know, uncommitted, because logic tells me, well, he would do the same thing I would do, right? <laughs> How other people are. Why would we want to stick with somebody like that? And, and so we see this, this idea, though, of God being so good, always so faithful, loving, patient, long-suffering. It's one of my favorite characteristics of God is that he's long-suffering. He suffers with me for a long time is what that means. So hopefully this morning we'll have a better understanding of not only the fact that he is faithful to provide for our needs, but that he actually wants to as well as his kids. So Matthew 17 is where we're going to pick it up in verse 22. And it says, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. And when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take their toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So the first part of this, we see, again, Jesus reminding them. He's repeatedly told them what his fate looks like, and and he keeps telling them, you know, this is going to happen. It's kind of like when we were parents and we had little kids, we were at a place like an event or somebody's house, and they were having a good time. We would get in the habit of trying to tell them, hey, guys, in about 20 minutes, we're going to be leaving, you know, and then like, okay, in about 10 minutes, we thought if we just kind of kept reminding them that this was coming, that maybe it would soften the blow, and I feel like this is what Jesus is doing here. He's He's trying to say, hey, guys, this is, this is coming, this is coming. But the disciples just couldn't accept this idea at all. How is it possible that their promised king is about to be delivered to the hands of dangerous men who are determined to put him to death? Surely 
this Jesus could find a way to stop that, couldn't he? I mean, think about everything they've watched Jesus do up to this point. I mean, is there anything he can't do, and yet you can't stop this from happening? This has got to be going through their minds. You know, even Jesus, by the way, says that he has 12 legions of angels, like ready, willing, and able at his disposal to call on when he, whenever he wants to. If you're doing the math at home, that's 144,000 angels. And I want you to think about what, is it, what, what happens when a person comes in contact just with one angel, right? Abject fear is what happens with one. Can you imagine 144,000 coming at you? Now, that's insane. Here's the thing, though, and th- this is what we all have to understand. This is the part that so many people seem to miss. Nothing ever happened to Jesus that he didn't allow to happen. Okay, the, Jesus was never a helpless victim in any of this. He, he was never concerned about losing. Um, this was God's plan. This is what he signed up for when he took on human flesh. It was always the plan. There, there's two passages in Acts that I love that, that speak about the sovereignty of God and, and everything that happened to Jesus. And the first one is in Peter's sermon in Acts 2. You might remember when he was talking, and he said, he, was talking, he said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified by the hands of lawless men. So you see, he's saying on one hand, this was God's plan, and, and yet this is what you guys did. And Acts 4 kind of explains it even more when it talks about how the kings set themselves against God. And, and he says, in this city, you had like Herod and you had Pontius Pilate who had determined to come against God and to, to do this horrible thing to Jesus. But at the, in verse 28, it says, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. It's just crazy to think about. Men can be doing the evil they want to do and at the same time, perfectly fulfilling God's will and doing what he wants them to do. That's kind of crazy. But it doesn't change the fact that the disciples were greatly distressed. They weren't getting any of the goodness of of the sovereignty of God and the plan of God in this stuff. Um, Once again, if you notice, they missed or ignored the best part of Jesus' statement, right? I'm going to die. I'm going to be handed over to men. I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised on the third day. But but it's like they don't, it's just, and in fairness to them, um, you know, how do you hear that and, and deal with it? You know, because again, one does not simply rise from the dead, right? This doesn't happen. So he's saying that, but they're like, well, he must mean something else because that doesn't happen. This is what makes Jesus so incredible and what he did so astounding. His life, death, and resurrection were so mind-blowingly out of the ordinary that it literally split time in two. You guys ever think about that? The way we measure time before Christ and after Christ? I mean, there's been some important people that have lived and, and died important deaths even. And, and yet, they didn't, they didn't divide time the way we measure time in two, and Jesus did. And this is why we believe that everything he claimed to be and everything he claimed to do is true, right? Including not only what he did, but what he's going to do. I mean, do you realize he's coming again? He will return to judge the living and the dead. Are you ready for that? Are you excited for that? I mean, you can be. If you, if you don't know him, if you're not on the right side of this, you know, it's a terrifying thing to think about because he's coming to judge us, but, but he's made every provision for you to be ready. You will bow before him as Lord. You will confess that he is Lord. That's, that's non-negotiable, but, but you can do it like willingly now in worship, or you can do it later uh, in a way that's not going to be so good. But the reason that you can, you can be confident that he's given provision is because Jesus came and he lived the perfect life for you that you couldn't live. He did that for you. And then he went to the cross in your place, and he, and he suffered and died the death that you deserved. He became your substitute. And then by coming back to life three days after he was buried, and co- he proved that he conquered sin and death. And basically, 
he is Lord. He is exactly who he said he, he, he was. And if you believe that and are willing to turn away from everything else and confess that he is Lord, the Bible says you will be saved. You'll be saved. That's it. This is good news. This is the news of the gospel that, that we're, we're given to preach. So that's the first part of our section. Then verse 24 moves the narrative forward, saying that when they got to, Caper- to Capernaum, uh, I love the name of these guys, the collectors of the two drachma tax. It sounds like a, a band. Like, I don't know if that's a band name that's been taken yet, but like, yeah, you know, have you guys heard the collectors of the two drachma tax? Or just, it's a good name. Anyway, it's still available, I think, if, you, if you're looking for a band name. Um, but they ask him, does your teacher not pay the tax? So Capernaum was Peter's home, and Jesus had now made it his home as well. So um, you know it's got to be a great town when, when right when you enter, you're met with tax collectors. You know, it's like they, they should have maybe had a convention and visitor bureau meeting. and like, hey, is this the best way to, to attract people to our town? Definitely not. Uh, these guys were responsible basically to collect a Jewish tax uh, of a half a shekel, which was equivalent to about two to three days wages. So it's a pretty good chunk of change. And, and the idea is that every law-abiding Jewish man over 20 was to pay this tax annually, and, and it went to the upkeep of the temple. If you think about everything that had to go on to the temple on a daily basis, there was a lot. And so this is what this, ta- this tax was for. They approach Peter, and they ask it in the negative, uh, does your teacher not pay the tax? Kind of an interesting way to ask. So there, there's this idea that they assumed he, he wasn't going to. And that could have been because Jesus already had kind of a reputation for making the lives of the religious leaders difficult. And they're thinking, oh, here, you know, here, here it comes. He's going he's gonna to cause trouble. Or they could have thought this because rabbis were often, they could exempt themselves from this tax. And the, the fact that they say he's a teacher means that maybe they, you know, he, he would say, hey, I don't have to pay this. I'm a rabbi. Lots of way, people found ways to get out of this tax, by the way. The, the Sadducees said, we don't believe in it. And they, so they just didn't pay it. That's handy. The Essenes said, you know, we, we think it's good, but once, once in a lifetime is enough. And that was all they did. So, so it, it was, sounds like it was pretty easy to get out of. But Peter, you know, impulsive Peter, they ask him, and he just, he, he volunteers Jesus to pay the tax. He doesn't have a conversation. He's like, is he going to pay it? Yep, yep, he'll do it. Um, now, Jesus had either overheard this conversation, or he just knew about it because he's Jesus. But when, when Peter gets back to the house, it says this in verse 25. When Peter came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax, from their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Now, Jesus just happens to be the son of the most high king, correct? So is he exempt from this tax? More than anybody. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it. So you can now picture Peter going, uh-oh, I told the guys you were going to pay it. You know, I didn't, I, I didn't, maybe I didn't think this through. Maybe I should have come and asked you first, Jesus, but, but I obligated you to three days wages, you know. Sorry. I, I love Peter in that way. Uh, but, but then Jesus is making this point, though, that the sons are free. Of course, that includes him, but it includes everybody who's part of the royal household. They're exempt from paying the tax. So it, it's kind of ridiculous and even insulting that they would ask Jesus to pay this task, task knowing, knowing who he is. But here's the cool thing, that if the, if the royal family is exempt, that means all the kids are exempt. And if you're a Christian today, this is amazing news for us. Because it means that everybody who's been united with Jesus through his death, burial, and resurrection, that they've been adopted into the family of God as, as legitimate sons and daughters, heirs. And so that means we're now also exempt from this thing. Um, as part of God's family, we are free. And, and this is a weird thing. Free people don't have to do things that other people have to do. So because we're citizens of God's kingdom, 
it means we have diplomatic immunity. <laughs> it's kind of a weird thing to think about, right? Uh, diplomatic immunity is a status granted to a diplomat that exempts them from the laws of a foreign jurisdiction. Um, this is uh, because Jesus fulfilled every aspect of the law for us perfectly. So we're not under its obligation any longer. And this is a controversial subject for Christians. It's something that doesn't make a lot of sense to us sometimes. But Romans 10.4 flat out says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So now for everyone who just heard me say, it doesn't matter what we do, hang on for a second. Hold tight, okay? This is one of the biggest reasons people have such a hard time with hearing the message of grace, free grace preached in church. They hear this and, and, they, and they, you know, we preach it all the time at the door, so you guys hear it often. If it's the idea if God has forgiven us from all of our sins and declared us to be righteous, it sounds like we have a license to do whatever we want, right? We have a license to sin or, or like a, a get-out-of-jail-free card that we can play anytime we want to and be like, oh, that doesn't apply to me. And I've actually heard get, people have gotten mad at me and rebuked me. I remember a guy one time at our old location um, who came up to me afterwards, and he said, if you tell people that Jesus has done all the work in making you righteous, they're going to think that holiness doesn't matter. And I fully understand the logic behind this thinking, but I can tell you, in my experience, that could not be further from the truth. Before coming to Christ, I did whatever I wanted, and I didn't think much about it at all. It didn't really bother me. I didn't feel bad about it. I wasn't convicted. I wasn't conflicted. I just did what I wanted. It was great. Uh, all that changed. <laughs> it was great in one sense, right? <laughs> guilt-free, you know, it's like whatever, but all that changed when the Holy Spirit took up residence in me. Now the things I was doing started to bother me. Well, why? Because they bothered God. So my, my language was like, well, I can't, I can't talk like that, and the habits that I had, well, I can't do that, and the things I would do, well, you're, you're not, you know, those things began to bother me. 1 Corinthians 10.23 is an interesting verse. It says, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. So that means I can but why would I? And this has been what I've, what I've learned as a Christian. When sin brings God nothing but grief and me nothing but dissatisfaction and grief and sorrow, well, why would I want to go into that? Why would I want to do it? And then you think about how it affects those who are around me, who hear me claim to be a follower of Christ and then live like a son of the devil. Well, what is that? That's a horrible thing, right? So 1 Corinthians 10.23, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Then it goes on to say, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor also. And so this is the question. Do you care about those who are perishing? How we live matters. What you say matters. How you treat others matters in this regard. And this is what we see demonstrated in what Jesus does in our passage today. Jesus paid his taxes even though he was tax exempt. (laughs) Now, who would do that? Right? You're going to go ahead and pay the government or the church your taxes if you don't have to? Jesus does. He didn't have to, but he determined that it was important to do anyway. And we're going to get to the reason for that in a minute. But first, I want to make a quick observation because I know how most of us probably feel about paying taxes, right? We all love it, right? No, we don't all love it because in part, it feels like the government's taking more than their fair share most of the time. Um, And then the other thing we struggle with is where our tax dollars go, what they get used for. Um, these two things combined make it to where we, we try to find loopholes. We try to find ways to exempt ourselves and not have to pay it. And, and if you think about what Jesus might have been thinking at this time uh, with his temple tax, think about what was going on in the temple at that time. Was Jesus like pro-temple and, and excited about everything that was happening there? No, not at all. <laughs> not even a little. 
They had found a way to take advantage of God's people, to use God's name as a means for gain. They were profiting from the people by pretending to be religious and, and following God. And Jesus hated it, right? So they would say things like, oh, you want favor with God? Well, that'll just shell out a little money. Oh, you want, to be, you want to be blessed? Oh, you don't want to go to hell? I mean, even the Catholic Church with indulgences, these kinds of things are frustrating. So how did Jesus treat that? Well, on more than one occasion, he went into the temple and started turning tables over and, and calling things like, you know, you're making my, my father's house a, you know, a, a den of robbers. You've turned it into that. You guys are stealing from people. And yet he still paid the tax. That's interesting. Why not protest? Why not boycott? Why not make a stand? You know, there are going to be times when we have to decide that for, you know, where our tax dollars go and what we have to do. And there may be a time when you decide, you know what, I, my conscience is not going to allow me to do this. I need to obey God rather than men, and I'm not going to do that. You're, you're, as Christians, we get to do that. You have to pay the consequences for it. You know, you still, we're, we're not free in that sense, but that's up to you. But there's a general principle that we see in Romans 13 that helps me a lot, and I hope it gives you some comfort too. Romans 13.1 it says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. You're already getting like, oh, I don't want to do that. <laughs> Just hang in there. <laughs> then it goes on to say, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on wrongdoers. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. And then here's what it says. This is what I'm getting to. Verse 6. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, Attending to this very thing, pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honored is owed. Now, nowhere in this does it say that these leaders that God has established are going to be godly at all. And if, you, if you're tracking like I am, they're ungodly most of the time. They're not even remotely godly. But that doesn't mean God hasn't placed them there for his purposes. So in other words, there will be times when we simply have to trust God and let him worry about the details. And I found that when I do that, it takes a lot of stress away from me. Because when you sit there and stress out about everything that goes on and how this all works and where it's going and what, just put it in God's inbox at some point and let him, let him can be concerned about it. And then take comfort in this. Every one of these people has to stand before God one day. They have to stand before God and they have to give an account. And we do too, you know. But, but to me, that gives me a little bit of comfort. So I think we can all agree that paying taxes stinks. We'd rather not do it. We'd rather just keep our money. But, but here's the thing. As bad as government can be, do you know what's worse? <laughs> no government at all. I mean, we get glimpses of it every once in a while, don't we? And it's chaos. It's anarchy. You take away government and anarchy ensues. And it's, it's, it's worse. So praise God that he has given us some kind of order. Um, so pray for your government. Uh, vote, vote for those who represent the things you value. And then most of all, just trust God through it all because I don't know what else we can do. You can stay up at night and wring your hands and lose sleep and not eat and it doesn't do a whole lot of good. So put it in God's inbox, trust him with it. But back to why Jesus paid the tax that he didn't have to. It's given to us in verse 27. He says, however, not to give offense to them, pay the tax. 
And this is funny because we live in a time when everybody's offended about everything all the time. And so you hear Jesus say, hey, we don't want to offend anybody. Was that what Jesus is saying here? Did Jesus ever offend people? (laughs) He kind of did it all the time, right? So it wasn't like he was afraid to offend people. That's That's not what he's saying, but he just would rather pay the tax right now than create a big scene. Um, we need to learn to choose our battles. And I think, I think Jesus is doing this here. You know, the gospel that we've been called to preach to people, I don't know if you've noticed, but it's, it's an offensive message. You're telling somebody that they are a sinner on the wrong side of, you know, God, and, and they need to turn from that and confess that they're a sinner and get right with God. I mean, that's an offensive message, right? We don't have to add to that by adding our own, you know, extra, we don't have to like, you know, pile on with more offenses just because we can. Um, as Christians, it's okay for us to turn the other cheek, right? Jesus taught that. Um, sometimes it's the best thing we can do to win somebody to Christ. Because this tax, like we said, wasn't compulsory. They didn't have to pay it. They could have appealed and not paid it, but it would have been a long process, would have attracted a lot of attention, and it probably would have distracted um, the disciples and gotten Jesus off of mission to what they were trying to do. And the enemy loves to distract us from the real mission that we're here for. He, he just does. Here's the thing, and this is the, the, the toe-stepping part, if I haven't already stepped on your toes. We're pretty big on our rights here in America. Um, and don't get me wrong, I love them. I love every one of them. I want to have them as long as I possibly can. I hope they never go away. But do you know that they could? They could. And I think because we've always had them and we, we've always known that they're a normal part of our life, somehow we, we, we've come to believe that they're God-given rights. And if you really think about it, which ones are God-given? What, what rights do we have that are God-given rights? And, and I'm like, I, I, we have the right to remain silent? You know, I'm not, I don't, if, if we have God-given rights as Christians, we should get on the phone right now to the leaders in China and North Korea and Iran and start, hey, you guys, you, you got this all wrong. These guys have God-given rights. You didn't, maybe you didn't know about them. Maybe you hadn't heard about them, right? The fact of the matter is we, we don't. Uh, we have them here, which is great, but, but here's the cool thing about all of these Christians who may not have these, these same rights that we have. It doesn't mean they're not free. And you, and you say, what do you mean they're not free? Their governments are oppressing them. They're, they're being killed. They're being persecuted, thrown in jail. What do you mean they're free? Well, just like what Jesus said earlier in this passage, the sons are free. Right? And, and if the Son of Man sets you free, how free are you? <laughs> you're free indeed. You're free. So, when you think about it, the worst thing that somebody can do to to a Christian is kill them, and then they usher us straight into the presence of God. So it's like, well, that wasn't too bad, was it? That's like, you know, as American Christians, here's the thing. We've got got rights while we have them. Hopefully, we have them for a long period of time, because again, I love them. We have freedoms. The question is now, how are we using them? How do we, are we using them for us, for our gain, or are we using them to advance the gospel? So we need to ask ourselves that question. You know, are we using them in a God-honoring way? Well, what I say, what I do, is this going to further, you know, my opportunities with the gospel, or is it going to diminish them? Will it enhance my testimony as a representative of Christ, or will it ruin it? So yes, we have diplomatic immunity, uh, but we're still ambassadors of Christ, and so how we live matters. It matters greatly. So Paul would say, Basically, we should become all things to all people, so by all means, we might win some. That's, that's the idea. So that might mean that we need to put our rights aside sometimes for the sake of others. I mean, who did that? Who modeled that for us better than anybody? Jesus. He had, like, God rights 
Those are the best rights you can actually have. And he said, you know what? I'm willing to set those aside for you guys, even by going to the cross. This is amazing. And he's our example to follow. And when you think about it, what does it say to others when we willingly surrender our privileges for the sake of them? It shows them we love them. It shows that we, we care about where they end up. And so keep all that in mind. I mean, it, it's a tricky thing to navigate in our day and age. Uh, we live in one of the goofiest times I've ever been, you know, a part of. But we have an opportunity here as an ambassador of Christ to, to make a difference in the way we do some of these things. Well, the next thing we see in this passage that I love is that Jesus can easily provide for all of our needs. And this includes the two things that weigh on us the most, like we already talked about, death and taxes, right? So let's talk about the tax part first. Uh, three days' wages was, it's a lot then, it's a lot now. I mean, most of us don't have just $500 sitting aside, ready to hand to the tax man at any given time. Um, it seems reasonable to think that Jesus, as God, would have just pulled out you know, a giant wad of cash and said, here you go, Peter, go take care of things for us. Uh, but from what we see here, it looks like Jesus didn't even have a half shekel to his name. And, and it just goes to show you that the way God chose to come versus the way I would have chose to come if I was in that, like, in that meeting, very different, right? Uh, we're told that there was nothing about Jesus that was attractive, it, it says that uh, we, men wouldn't have been attracted to him. He was despised and rejected. I would have done that differently. I would have been like, people would have been going, is that a God or a man? I'm not sure. You know, it's like, well, I mean, that's, it says that Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head. I would have had a place to lay my head. Really nice place. Maybe two or three of them. Um, the fact that, that Jesus doesn't have any money is kind of shocking. This is God. And, and he's, not, he's not got money to pay this tax. But does that pose a problem for him? Not even a little. Yeah, he knows where to get it. It's not a problem. He's got a plan. So I love what he tells Peter. And this is kind of comical to me because you picture Peter hearing this. He's like, oh, what, this is what I want you to do. All right, here's the plan. I want you to, to go to the sea. It's like Peter's like, okay, I know where that's at. I've done that a lot in my life. I want you to cast a hook, one, and take the first fish that comes up. And then uh, you're going to open his mouth up and you're going to find a shekel. And then I want you to just take that to the tax man. And I can see Peter going, yeah, Jesus, that's, that's going to work. Yeah, that, that happens all the time. That's, I can't tell how many times we've been fishing and, you know, that, that, you know, and you could think maybe if I take a net, I'll get hundreds, maybe thousands of fish, and maybe that'll increase my chances a little bit to, to be able to do this. Peter's been a fisherman all his life. He knows how fishing works, okay? You don't just cut open a fish and find the coin, let alone the exact Jewish coin. It was a specific coin, Jewish coin you had to have in, in Roman coin world. And it was the exact amount that they needed for both him and Jesus. All right? Um, I'm going to go on a limb here and say this has never happened before and won't ever happen again. Uh, this also tells us exactly who we're dealing with here. Who was Jesus? He's God. Nobody else can, you know, know this or orchestrate this. This is a, amazing. And here's the point. How many times have you guys had a financial burden or a situation come up in your life that you thought, how, how in the world could this work out? How in the world is, is, is this going to um, come together? Where's the money going to come from? Where's the, you know, wh- wh- is anything too hard for God? Certainly not. But this goes back to my early predicament, which I mentioned to you guys already. I know he's capable of doing anything, but why would he want to do it for someone like me? And I, I want you to keep in mind that his provision is far more than just money right? It's not just meeting our physical temporal needs. It includes our emotional needs, right? 
our, our health needs, our mental needs, our relational needs, and of course our spiritual needs. Well, we see the answer, and it's right, in our, it's right in front of our face as to why. Why would God do this for somebody like me? And it's the, probably the most well-known verse in the Bible. You guys could all recite it with me right now. We should probably just say it together, you know. For God so loved the world, and you can insert your name there, right? For God so loved Brent, for God so loved, you know, your name, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. How much does God love you? You know, there's a verse in Romans 8 that we should just know uh, by heart. It's so good. Uh, The first part I think you all know. It says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? But listen to this next part. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How will he not also give us all things? So here's the idea. If he was willing to make the ultimate sacrifice by going to the cross to die in our place, why wouldn't he be willing to meet all of these other lesser, insignificant, silly needs that we have? He met that need. It's like, you're, you're willing to pay my sin debt, but you're not going to meet, you know, you're not going to pay my electric bill. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, that's, that's crazy to think about. You're not going to make sure that I have, you know, you, made, you went to the cross, you suffered and died in my place. You went through I can't even imagine what Jesus went through on the cross. We know how he sweat drops of blood in the garden, imagining what he was going to have to go through. You went through that, but you're not going to make sure I don't have, I have you know, I have clothes, shelter, all the, you know, food. Of course he is. If he sent his son, the son he loves, to the cross on our behalf, he's going to take care of our needs. He's proven that he wants to. He loves you. He wants to meet your needs. And, and here's the thing. He knows you. <laughs> I want you to make sure you get that. He knows you, and he still loves you. And that, that's got to sink in for us. That means past you, present you, and future you. And he still said, you know what? I am going to set my love upon them. And he proved it by sending Jesus. And then you'll say, yeah, but what if he changes his mind? What if he finally just tires of me? Right? And that's what I think. Well, I'm glad you asked. It's a great question. Romans 8.35 answers this for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And and the obvious answer is no. And then he goes on at 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, and I love this list. I mean, think about what, what does he leave out? Or, you know, nothing. He, he, he goes to, he, he's trying to, this is almost like a hyper, hyperbolic statement of like nothing. What shall separate us? I am convinced that neither life or death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that means that nothing will ever change God's mind. <laughs> Isn't that good? Thank you for that. You're stuck with him, you know? <laughs> That's pretty cool. Jesus paid it all. Um, I love this idea of this, this, this tax debt. Peter's got this situation. He doesn't have any money. He's been traveling with Jesus. He hasn't been fishing in a long time now. And, 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 and he's like, I don't know how this is going to get paid. He probably didn't have three days wages sitting there. Jesus said, I got it. I got your debt, Peter. You think he's, uh, he's got your debt too? He does. He's the ultimate debt payer. There's this beautiful picture here of Jesus re- relieving us from the need to pay any and all temple taxes right? And so when you think about what the temple tax was, 
again, it was for the ongoing sacrificial system that was taking place. So you had this, this every day sacrifices were made. Every day it went on. So you've got to, you've got to pay for the salaries of the priests. You've got to cover the, the animals, the, the attire the priests wore. You've got the wood, the flour, the oil. I mean, on and on it goes. Lots of money going into this thing. And the book of Exodus records why the tax was started and how it was likened to paying a ransom to make atonement for your sins. So you want your sins to be forgiven? Well, you need to pay this tax so that all this stuff is possible so that you can, you can have, you know, uh, some kind of a um, atonement. And Jesus has removed the need for that tax by giving his own life as the ransom to atone for our sins. The price has been paid in full. So there's, there's no more need for this tax ever again. There's no more need for the priests. There's no more need for the, the, the sacrificial lamb. There's no more need for the temple because Jesus became all of those things for you. He's our priest that mediates between us and God. He's the sacrifice that appeases God's wrath. He's our temple where we can go to be cleansed and, and find sanctuary. So what this means for you and I, beloved, is that death and taxes ain't got nothing on us anymore. <laughs> okay? All right. Father, thank you so much that you have, uh, you've done so much for people that uh, really don't deserve it, Lord. We, we understand that um, you were under no obligation to to come and send your beloved son on, the, on behalf of us, but because you loved us, because you loved the world, you did. So Lord, help us not to, to spin out of control. Help us not to, to worry and wonder how, how all of our needs are going to be met because we are a needy people, and yet you are a God who supplies. So thank you for supplying what we needed most, a Savior. And thank you for, um, for the fact that you, not only did you supply that, but you'll, you'll meet our daily needs. You'll be our daily bread. You'll give us everything that we need, and we can trust in that. So help us to be encouraged by these words today and, uh, and to be grateful, Lord, in the way that we live our lives unto you. In Jesus' name, amen.